Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Greetings, listeners. Welcome to another edition of New Books in Russia and Eurasia, part of the New Books Network. I'm Kevin Rothrock, and I'll be your host today. This marks my first time as co-host of the show, and I'm proud to be joining Sean Guillory, whose work over the last year has helped put the New Books Network on the map. Every podcast, I talk to an author about their new book, on Russia or Eurasia. In this episode, I spoke with Jared Tanney, Assistant Professor of History at UNC Wilmington, about his new book, City of Rogues and Schnorrs, Russia's Jews and the Myth of Old Odessa, published earlier this year by Indiana University Press. Ah, nostalgia is such an illness, and what a beautiful illness. There is no medicine for it, and thank God there isn't. This was how one of the Soviet Union's most famous jazz singers and actors, Leonid Uchosov, concluded his memoirs. But Joseph was referring to his ironic relationship with the city of his birth and the source of so much of his material over the years, the city of Odessa, which he both ridiculed for its decadence and celebrated for the magic of its legends. Nostalgia and paradox are at the center of Tanny's book, City of Rogues and Schnorrs. As the title indicates, the book is immersed in Jewish language, particularly Jewish humor, and Tanny delivers readers an inspired analysis of Odessa's role in Soviet history as a city that fueled cultural irreverence throughout the humorlessness of the Tsarist and Soviet ages. Given the rather grim reputation left by Russian monarchy and communism, Tanny's book is a refreshing and essential reminder that levity has played a central role in Soviet and now Russian and Ukrainian identity. City of Rogues and Schnorrs is at times a story of indirect resistance, but it's also a chronicle of the evolution of Jewishness, first in the Russian Empire and then in the Soviet Union. And more than a narrative only about Jewishness, Tanny's book studies the cultural infusion that occurred in Odessa, explaining how Soviet culture at large came to take pride in Odessa's mythology as a national treasure. For more discussion on Odessa's mythology and its place in Soviet folklore, here's my interview with Jared Tanny. Welcome to New Books in Russia and Eurasia. Uh, this is Jared Tanny, the author of a very new book called City of Rogues and Schnorrs, Russia's Jews and the Myth of Old Odessa. Am I pronouncing that word Schnorrs correctly? Pronouncing it beautifully. Oh, yeah? Okay. All right. Um, <laughs> You're so halfway there. I'm halfway <laughs> uh, So just to get started, why don't you let the listeners just know kind of your background, like who who are you, Jared? Oh, thank you, Kevin. And <laughs> thank you very much for having having me on your show. I really appreciate the, yeah, appreciate the interview. Uh-huh. Um, I'm, uh, what can I say about myself? Well, I'm originally from Canada, uh, from Montreal. So if uh, my accent sounds funny, it's because I'm Canadian. Yes, very um, And I did my PhD in Russian and Jewish history at, uh, at UC Berkeley. And I finished in 2008. Uh, my area of research um, has been Russian, has been Russian history from the very beginning. Um, and I was always interested in uh, nationalities and national minorities. I did my undergrad in the early 90s, right when things were falling apart in the former Soviet Union. And um, I knew that I wanted to do something relating to nationalism or national minorities. And doing a Jewish history topic was was just a logical move for me to make, um, given my own Jewish background. And given that my attempt to study the Caucasus resulted in 
way too many attempts to learn incomprehensible languages. So I figured Russian Jewish history, it was a growing field. Um, I've always been interested in Jewish history in, in part because of my own, my own Jewish background, but also because they were a fascinating people in the Soviet Union. Everything that you, uh, that I'd ever read in, in Russian history as an undergrad, and they would make general statements about the nationalities and the national minorities, the 150 peoples who, who live in the USSR. There would always be a comma except for the Jews after it listed them. And then eventually I got, you know, a little fed up with this, okay, a comma except for the Jews. Why are the Jews an exception? Or are they in fact an exception? Who are the people who are writing this? And it made sense for me to, you know, explore a topic um, in this area. Okay. All right. And so, so how did you come exactly to, to want to study Odessa and specifically Jewish gangsters of all, of all people? Well, it's really funny. You know, I, I've always loved the writings of Isaac Babel, who, who's probably one of the most, if not the most important Russian Jewish writers um, who were writing in Russian at the time of the revolution. Um, he traveled with the uh, with a Cossack brigade um, attached to the Red Army during the Polish uh, the Polish Soviet War of 1920. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also wrote stories about Jewish gangsters. Um, in Odessa. So I always really loved his writing. Mm-hmm. But, um, and I visited Odessa once in 1994. I, I didn't know that I was going to work on Odessa um, as a long-term project. But uh, ironically, I arrived at the topic um, in a literally a five-minute conversation with my advisor, Yuri Slyoskin at Berkeley, mm-hmm. um, when I told him, you know, I wanted to do a Jewish-related a topic, something involving nationality, national identity, perhaps, or identity and cultural history now, at this in time, some way. And at this time, had he already... Had he already published the Jewish, the Jewish Century, or was this before? This was before he published it. Right. He was writing it. I had mm-hmm. no idea at the time, actually, that he was working on it, oh, because okay. I'd, I'd taken some time off on graduate school, and right. during right. that time, he accidentally, he accidentally fell into that topic. Uh-huh. So that was just an added, an added bonus, which I found out afterwards. Right. And when he was trying to think of good Jewish-related topics, you know, especially for the 1920s and 30s, he suggested, well, why not work on Birobijan, the Jewish autonomous oblast uh, out in uh, the Soviet Far East? Mm-hmm. He said, nobody's really written a good scholarly, uh, you know, work at that, and it really, really uh, needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And I just imagined myself living amidst the, the mosquitoes of Siberia, <laughs> uh, the gigantic mosquitoes in the harsh winter and right. the miserable year and the, mm-hmm. the, the ensuing divorce that my wife would, uh, would <laughs> undertake. Think, going off to the Soviet party. Right. Think of so all I the said, honey well, you missed out on, though. All the they have yeah. great honey. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But right, I can always right. go back to Canada. Uh-huh. I have the Shabugamu. And do okay. So I said, you know what? I said, I don't know about that. And he said, well, then there's always Odessa. Right. You know, Isaac Babel's from Odessa. Ustat Bender from the uh, the novel The Twelve Chairs is from Odessa. Mm-hmm. Um, it was known. It was notorious for its Jewish gangsters and its jazz musicians. It's on the Black Sea. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what? That sounds like a much better idea. Right, right. So that's how I arrived at Odessa. It was literally, and that in many respects, like you know, attests to the, uh, the 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 brilliance of my my advisor that he's able to get someone in the direction of a topic that's interesting to him mm-hmm. so so easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, just with a few suggestions. Right, right. Um, so that, that's how I arrived at Odessa, and the gangster aspect was the logical uh, way to go with it because this is one of the things that Odessa was infamous for. Um, of course, the reality is far more complex. The, the myth of the city of Odessa is that it's a city of sin mm-hmm. um, and a Jewish city of sin at that, a city overrun with Jewish gangsters that was really run by Jewish gangsters um, and mus- musicians who were playing this debaucherous mm-hmm. jazz music that the Soviet government wanted to, uh, wanted to eliminate from Soviet culture. Right. Um, it was also known for its humor. Um, and if you look at uh, Russian so and then Soviet humor, much of it comes um, from Odessa, and there is a strong correlation between it um, and Jewish humor. So there were just so many interesting cultural aspects right. um, to looking at the city. 
So I, I decided to make it a, a cultural uh, rather project rather than like a social history. At first, I thought that I might do a social history of the Jewish gangsters um, in Odessa. Mm-hmm. But ironically, this was uh, I ruled out against this after one conversation with my um, other advisor at Berkeley, uh, John Efron, mm-hmm. um, a specialist in German Jewish history. And um, I was telling him my idea and he said, well, that sounds great. But, you know, what makes this, you know, Jewish or are they just gangsters who happen to have been born Jewish? Mm-hmm. I mean, is there nothing Jewish about them? And then I realized, you know, what, if I look at it from the cultural perspective about how they were mythologized, um, I know the Jewishness is there. Mm-hmm. Like it's definitely there the way that uh, people describe them and the way that many of them describe themselves, the language that they used. Mm-hmm. Um, you see Jewish culture and the influence that it had on it. Mm-hmm. So thanks to thanks to the sound advice of, of uh, my two advisors at Berkeley, um, I was pushed um, in this direction, and it worked out. I see. Okay. Well, no, that's a very interesting sort of explanation as to how this because this book is really it's about the myth making, uh, the history of the myth, less than than you know a socioeconomic history of the of the city's kind of criminals, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I, I did for the for the period that is generally considered the heyday of the uh, Jewish gangster in Odessa, mm-hmm. roughly the 1890s to the late 1920s. Mm-hmm. I did look at archival documents to see if there was uh, an empirical basis uh, to it. And yes, there certainly were Jewish gangsters who were active um, in the region, mm-hmm. but there were also Jewish policemen who were very active in the region. And just uh, for, to take one year, for example, in the early 1920s, um, the three people who signed off on you know literally every um, arrest, mm-hmm. um, every booking that took place, um, were Jewish. So right. it, this was a Jewish city, and Jews found themselves uh, a niche in practically every aspect of the economy, um, be it the legal economy or the illicit economy, and um, which there was a strong overlap between the two, of course. And, and the Jews made up 33% of the population. Mm-hmm. But no, it's a, in that sense, it's not a socioeconomic history of the city. Um, right. For the 19th century, there's an excellent one that's been done by Patricia Hurley, and without her you know, remarkable work, mm-hmm. um, I wouldn't have been able to have enough background. Um, to set the stage for what came afterwards. Mm-hmm. And for the Soviet period, um, yeah, a, a social history of Odessa, um, and Odessa's Jews in particular, you know, is still sorely needed for the, for the Soviet period. That has, that has yet to be written. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, 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 I mean, imagine the Soviet period, the sort of greatest kind of, at least demographic event is, is the Second World War. And, and you kind of get into, get into how even before that, the Jewish myth is sort of experiencing troubles and can you kind of what what can you tell readers about kind of the the different you've, you've mentioned sort of the, the the heyday the beginning from the 1890s to the 1920s mm-hmm. what generally is sort of the kind of the, the 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 eras of the Jewish myth and kind of roughly speaking like how does it evolve over time well it's really it's really a fascinating process I mean it, it really begins from the city's very foundations um, when, you know, Catherine the Great decided to found the city. And it was in many respects her baby. She wanted this to be the port um, on the Black Sea. Um, it was the most temperate port that Russia would have. It would be ice-free for much of the year. Um, and she really wanted to encourage settlement here because this was this was part of Novorossiya, New Russia. Um, it was sparsely settled. It, would, it had been former, formerly Turkish land that was conquered by the, from the Ottoman Empire in the late 1700s. Um, and there just weren't a lot of people living there. So she gave people incentives to come and settle there. Um, so she really marketed the city and played it up. So peasants, serfs who ran away from their masters and made it into New Russia, were allowed to settle there and did not have to, to fear being captured and sent back. Mm-hmm. Uh, she invited foreigners to come and settle the city. The first governors were all of West European descent. Uh, and they gave the city a very Mediterranean, Italian slash Greek feel to it, or French Riviera, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the Jews who were living in the Pale of Settlement at the time, just to the north, 
um, in what is today uh, Ukraine, Belarus, Poland, and uh, some of the Baltic states. Mm-hmm. She uh, told the Jews, I said, yeah, you know, you move down to Odessa. It'll be part of the Pale of Settlement, mm-hmm. um, but you will have fewer restrictions uh, than you do in the rest of the Pale of Settlement. So there was a there was a push and the pull uh, for immigrants to come into Odessa. Um, And it was, I mean, so it was seen as a frontier boomtown from the very beginning. In many respects, it was a frontier boomtown because it was a major site of exports um, of grain from the Russian Empire. Right, you Um, you compare it to to San Francisco, right? So for American listeners, the kind of, the, 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 the biggest parallel you seem to raise is kind of actually like a gold town, right? Like, Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's San Francisco, you know, because of the gold rush um, of the late 1840s, 1850s, um, attracted attracted thousands and thousands of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shanghai, you can make a parallel with Shanghai, too, which was not a new city, of course, but right. because of um, European colonialism there, it created a frontier town seaport um, atmosphere to it. So it was a thriving economy, mm-hmm. but it also led to an economy um, of contraband and illicit activities, because who comes to frontier towns? People looking for easy wealth. Mm-hmm. People looking for a good time. Um, people who want to escape the confines um, of, you know, strict, their strict, perhaps religious upbringing in the case of the Russian Jews. Uh, the shtetl was very cramped at the time. There were a lot of people. Restrictions were increasing um, uh, with each the reign of each czar in the 19th century. And uh, moreover, um, you know, the religious authorities, be they uh, the ultra-Orthodox Hasidic Jews or the Misnagdim, the Jews who rejected um, uh, the Hasidic movement, they were still very much in charge of the Jewish communities there. So even Jews who were forward-looking and who wanted to embrace, let's say, the Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment, for them, Odessa symbolized freedom. They could go there um, as you know, young men, try and get an ex- education in secular studies, and they didn't have to worry um, about rabbinic coercion, if you will. Mm-hmm. So, but the thing is, you know, when people come there and they're expecting easy wealth, um, very often they're disappointed and they look towards other means. And this is how people started to feed into the criminal world. This was, of course, true in New York as well mm-hmm. um, in the late 19th century when East Europeans, Jews and others, um, came to New York and they wanted to experience the mobility they imagined to exist in the Golden Land. Um, and they quickly realized that they were not going to have mobility overnight um, without working really hard in the factories. So many of them turned to the criminal underworld. Um, and that's what happened, you know, in Odessa. So we have, we have myth and reality kind of feeding each other. People are going to the city because it's a, because it's being marketed as a frontier boomtown, uh, a city of easy wealth. Um, they're getting there. They're not exactly finding that. And because it's a cosmopolitan seaport with a bomby climate, um, they have opportunities um, to engage in activities um, that they otherwise would not be able to do in the more frigid in, uh, insular regions of Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as a seaport, you had sailors coming in from everywhere uh, in the Mediterranean world. Mm-hmm. Um, a Greek diaspora emerged and thrived for a while um, in Odessa. Um, the street signs in the city were uh, in Italian for the first quarter of the 19th century. Um, so it had this cosmopolitan atmosphere um, for really its entire history, or it was marked as having this cosmopolitan atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Now, how did the Jews get involved? Well, the Jews started coming in, you know, from the very beginning. That it was only in the mid-century that they really started to have um, a major demographic uh, impact. Uh, they started to come in larger numbers, um, again, because with modernization starting to take place in the pale, um, it meant that uh, the economic way of life was undergoing rapid change, and for many people, not for the better. Okay. Uh, after, after the serfs were emancipated, this really upset the traditional Jewish economy because they had been the middlemen 
uh, for so long between peasants um, and lords in the lands that had formerly been Poland. So the Jews started coming down to Odessa, and by the late 19th century, they made up one-third um, of the population. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the only group that was more heavily represented than the Jews um, were the Russians, of course. Mm -hmm. And when I say Russians, Ukrainians were probably included in those statistics of Russians right. uh, for a, uh, to a large extent. But are we, to, are we to believe that they were most likely Russian-speaking then, or...? Yeah, yeah, right. that's it. Russia had to, Russian had to serve as the lingua franca. When mm -hmm. you have um, you know twelve different nationalities represented um, in the city, as with really any other multi-ethnic uh, city in the so in the in Russian Empire, the Soviet Union, Russian would be the lingua franca. Mm -hmm. But of course, like any um, multi-ethnic city, you have loan words and linguistic patterns and right. syntax. Um, feeding into that Russian. Mm -hmm. So much like you could uh, listen to the New York spoken in, uh, much like you listen to the English spoken in New York, you can hear uh, the Yiddish influence on it. You can hear the Irish influence on it. You can hear the Italian influence on it. Mm -hmm. This was the case with Odessa as well. Now, perhaps more importantly, because the Jews, you know, were fairly um, industrious, and I put that term in quotations, mm -hmm. Marx, because uh, industrious doesn't necessarily mean upstanding businessmen. Mm -hmm. um, it, it also means people who are, you know, businessmen engaging in things not so, uh, not so upstanding, if you will. Mm -hmm. But also people getting involved in the professions, people getting involved in journalism, a very easy profession for the Jews to break into. Mm -hmm. um, we essentially have the Jews becoming uh, an important element of the cultural elite and what one may call the middle class um, in this city. Mm -hmm. So it, it became a Jewish city in that sense, That's demographically, true. because they were 33% um, and um, intellectually and economically because of the, the positions they assumed. Well, it's funny you use the word upstanding as well, because part of part of the book seems to imply that, or at least the myth of the the, the criminals of Odessa is that they actually kind of they serve the people in a certain way, right? That they kind of fill the gap of a of a underperforming government, right? Oh yeah, definitely, yeah. And, and and you have and you have people romanticizing the criminals as, as well. Like you know, they're not only defenders of the Jews, but they're spokesmen of the Jews. They're mm -hmm. looking out for the Jews. Now, much of it, of course, is myth. But you, you do read letters written by Jewish criminals at various points um, who argue that they're defending the Jews from pogroms mm -hmm. um, and doing all sorts of wonderful stuff, and therefore they're not really bandits. Um, you also see them invoking the language of uh, of Bolshevism once the revolution came around mm -hmm. by saying that they're. Actually Actually, you know, not robbing from the poor; they're only robbing from the rich mm -hmm. um, in the name of class consciousness. Mm -hmm. uh, they're expropriators; they're mm -hmm. not actually actually robbers. So Jews were very skilled. Um, Jewish criminals were very skilled in the arts of linguistic manipulation. Mm -hmm. and, and people, the people who who mythologized the city afterwards um, took advantage of that as well and portrayed them as uh, masters in the arts of mm -hmm. linguistic manipulation. Uh, the one thing that I meant to add before about why the city became known as a Jewish city, and this makes it different from so many other places um, in the Russian Empire, um, is that Odessa had no titular nationality mm -hmm. um, before um, or in the early days of its founding. It was terra incognita. It was, terra, it was territory uh, conquered from the Turkish population, the Turkish Empire, and there were hardly any Turkish people living there at the time. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. It's interesting to compare Odessa to Warsaw in this sense, okay. because Warsaw was also 33% Jewish, mm -hmm. um, and the Poles made up 45% of the population, much like Russians made up 45% of Odessa. But Warsaw was historically a Polish city. It had been the historic homeland and the former capital of the Polish state. Mm -hmm. So it could never be considered like a Jewish city in mm -hmm. the same way that a city that did not have a titular nationality um, could be considered a Jewish city. There was no group that needed to be um, 
culturally or mythologically displaced, you know, as the city having belonged to them because it was new territory. Mm -hmm. okay. And it's similar. It's similar to New York in that sense. Right, right. New York is the like the ultimate American um, immigrant metropolis. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> so that's the 19th century. Uh -huh. um, and by, so by the late 19th century, the Jews are very much uh, dominating uh, the Russian language press. Um, Russian, of course, is being adopted as the lingua franca, in part because of the multi-ethnic nature of the city, and in part because, you know, these are young people who are coming in. They're not, you know, older people who had been speaking Yiddish for 75 years um, and are, you know, actively trying to preserve um, their, their culture that they're bringing in. Mm -hmm. um, and so this was the state of affairs when the, uh, the revolution came around. And when the Bolshevik Revolution took place, um, I should say the revolutionary period, because Odessa changed hands about eight times mm -hmm. um, during uh, during the revolutionary era. Uh, it was in control at some points by Ukrainian nationalists. It was in control by Dnikins, a uh, white army. Mm -hmm. um, it was in controlled by gangsters at some point, if you will. Um, mm -hmm. And the Bolsheviks were in charge on at least three different occasions before yeah. they finally cemented their rule. So they would they would they would take the city and then have to abandon it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And the city it's not that the city was so strategically important, but it was in an area that was of strategic importance and in an area where there was heavy fighting. I mean there was there was a lot of, you know, um activity um in southern Ukraine, uh, especially between the Dnikinists and the Ukrainian nationalists, um and of course the Red Army as well. So so and uh, being a port city of course, um it was important to be able to secure this um, long-term wise. But it took a long time for the Bolsheviks to get control of the city. And you read stories, many of them are apocryphal, um, but about the leading Jewish gangster, Mishka Yaponchik, um, about how he you know, walked into the Bolsheviks' uh, office, into the head of the Cheka's office, and said, I am here to fight for Soviet power. You know, Let me take my, my criminals, my men, and we'll form a unit. We'll carry the red flag, and we'll go off into battle. Um, and we will turn this into, you know, a city that belongs, that pridefully belongs to the Soviet motherland. Mm -hmm. And the Cheka's officials looking at him kind of skeptically, like, you know, am I really going to trust this guy? Mm -hmm. But he had a strong power base um, at this point. He had people with weapons. Um, so, you know, the Bolsheviks were willing to give him uh, to give him a shot. They figured, what the hell? And they were almost willing to, you know, take on anyone who, who claimed they were fighting for their cause. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the fact of the matter is uh, the Jewish gangsters were sent out into battle. And um, I think within three or four days. They had one uh, one battle with uh, Pete Lura's uh, nationalists um, in Vosnysiansk, and they said, "Forget this!" And they they you know threw their weapons down, or actually they kept their weapons. They threw the Soviet flag down and ran back. <laughs> they continued their looting. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, they missed home, so they went back. <laughs> uh -huh. Well, actually, on the on this subject, before we move sort of ahead in in Soviet history, if we could actually jump to the contemporary day, I was I was wondering what in in all this sort of Jewish mythology of Odessa. Do you, do you have any idea how it's sort of playing out today where Ukrainian nationalism has been kind of in some instances conflated with with um, with fighting alongside the Nazis and, and mm -hmm. anti-Semitic sort of patriotism, nationalism, um, you know, Bandera and so on? I mean, how how is there is is are, are Ukrainians sort of hesitant or reluctant to embrace the sort of Jewish nature of Odessa? Or is it so accepted that that it's not really a, a debate or what what's you know what what's happening in that? In that area now. Well, Ukrainians in Odessa very much do accept this, uh, and they're you know they're proud of their their, their Jewish heritage and, and they're proud of their criminal heritage at least uh, based on my encounters with them. Uh, even even the non-Jews are proud of their of their of the Jewish heritage of the city. 
Yeah, but you mm-hmm. know what? The, the most, most Ukrainians that I met, so the people who said that they were ethnically Ukrainian, mm-hmm. um, you know, were at least part Jewish, part Russian, perhaps part Polish, maybe mm-hmm. had some Greek background. Mm-hmm. It's a city where there was a very high rate um, of, of integration, mm-hmm. of uh, inter-ethnic marriages. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Ukraine is a very, very culturally fragmented um, place and politically fragmented place. Um, you do not have a strong, pervasive Ukrainian ethno-national identity mm-hmm. from region to region. Right. Um, and of course, you just have to look at, you know, the long durée of Ukrainian history to see that. I mean, this is a place that had very little experience of independence under the name Ukraine at any point in time, just mm-hmm. a brief period during the Civil War. So if you go to the uh, eastern Ukraine, if you go to, you know, the Donbass region, I mean, it's very much a Russian-speaking region. They see themselves as Russian. Perhaps they're happy that they're part of the Ukrainian state and not Russia, but it's not uh, a place where Ukrainian nationalism is strong. Mm -hmm. Then you go a little bit over to Kiev, and Kiev is very much um, a Ukrainian-speaking city at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is very, it is not insular at all, and it is very cosmopolitan, and they don't seem to be um, in the vanguard of Ukrainian nationalism. Mm-hmm. But if you go further west to a place like uh, Lvov, or Lviv as it's now called, mm-hmm. um, that is um, really the epicenter of Ukrainian nationalism today, because um, that region had absolutely no connection to Russian history mm-hmm. um, before World War II. Or I should say it had been severed from, by, from Kievan Rus, going back... Um, close to, you know, 800 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was where Ukrainian nationalism has uh, established its strongest foothold, and it ha- has always had its strongest foothold. Now, this is peculiar because um, it doesn't really fit in any of these models. Uh, and I went there shortly after the Orange Revolution in uh, 2005, and I was trying to figure out where Odessa, you know, had really fallen on this. I had assumed that since it was a Russian-speaking city, um, they would have fallen in line uh, with the uh, with the Russian camp, mm-hmm. um, but they didn't, and they didn't really fall in line with the Ukrainian camp either. They were seemed kind of aloof to this whole process. Mm-hmm. You know, they were thinking, you know, let those other people in Ukraine, you know, fight it out. You know, mm-hmm. we're Odessans. This is our city. Um, you know, we speak Russian. Uh, if people want to speak Ukrainian, that's fine, but nobody will really understand them, mm-hmm. um, even though all the street signs are in Ukrainian now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but we are different, and you know, we are proud um, of our difference mm-hmm. and and of our past. Um, of difference. And do you think that even in, in say, in Lvov or Lviv, would would being from Odessa be a liability, or, or or are they equally proud of having Odessa be a great city of their country, or what? Did you get any sense about Odessa's sort of reputation outside of the city across Ukraine? Well, I, I well, the only time I was in Lviv was back in 1990, uh, 1994, mm-hmm. um, before there was really any sort of tourist infrastructure. And, you know, you felt the Ukrainian nationalism there. I see. Um, and, you know, I, I couldn't communicate with anyone for the, the three days that I was there because nobody wanted to speak Russian with me. I see. And I did not speak Ukrainian at the time. Right, right. Uh, and I, actually, I still don't speak Ukrainian, but mm-hmm. I, I certainly didn't speak it at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I can't really answer for Lviv, but certainly for um, for Kiev, mm. uh, my favorite uh, encounter there was, you know, literally, you know, right after I got off the plane and uh, uh, my wife and I took a taxi mm. um, and the taxi driver said, oh, so you're, you're staying in Ukraine for a few months. Where are you going? And I said, oh, I'm going down to Odessa. And he started to laugh and he said, ah, oh, you better put your wallet in your front pocket <laughs> as a shirt, you know, mm-hmm. meaning that you'll probably get robbed while you're there, but you'll have a good time. Mm-hmm. So I think they have, I, I would have to say that, um, you know, barring regions with strong, you know, nationalism, um, Odessa um, in, you know, for many people in the country, you know, they're, they're sort of proud of this reputation that mm-hmm. they have the city of sin, right. um, you know, down, down on the coast. 
mm-hmm. it gives the country a sense of igno- of exoticness it might it might otherwise not have. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, I can't speak you sure, know sure. On behalf of a Ukrainian nationalist. Right, right. <laughs> um, okay, so so yeah, so that's that's great. Um, and so we were we were kind of talking before about um, the the revolutionary period and the and sort of the civil war, and then so let's kind of pick it up again in the twenties, which is you know the the Nep era and and kind of the culmination of their their golden age, I suppose. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, what really happened was, you know, the Bolsheviks, you know, they launched uh, an assault against um, Odessa, as they did against all forms of, you know, dissidents, debauchery, um, any sort of economic activity or cultural activity that did not fit the mold of, you know, quote, a healthy proletarian culture mm-hmm. or a healthy proletarian economy. So Odessa was seen as this problematic place, um, a place where uh, they had done what they wanted for so long. Um, a place where they were celebrating their criminals, and that was rampant with criminality. So they wanted to clean up the city. Now, certainly before the revolution, too, you know, there were the city officials were not happy about the level of crime. Mm-hmm. The czarist government and officials at court, uh, at court sort of had this disdainful attitude toward Odessa because it was a Jewish city of sin. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in as much as there were attempts to clean up the city's criminality, um, it was very much before the revolution, you know, driven about, you know, driven over about safety and making it a place that is, you know, beautiful and not filled with crime and prostitution. There was no ideal. There was no explicit ideological component to it. Mm-hmm. For the Bolsheviks, it wasn't even just a matter of cleaning up, you know, the criminals. They had a problem with people celebrating the Jewish gangsters. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, even Isaac Babel's stories, uh, which were incredibly popular about the Jewish gangsters, who, to a certain extent, you know, he did sort of romanticize certain aspects of them, but he did it in a very ironic sort of way, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, he would show these guys are not compatible, you know, with what's going on in the Soviet Union. Um, or Leni Dukyosov, who was by far and away the most famous jazz musician um, ever produced, uh, uh, ever, whoever emerged in the Soviet Union. Um, people said he had the most recognizable face um, um, after Stalin. Stalin. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, he was much better looking than Stalin. Um, so, <laughs> but he, he was like, you know, the leading luminary, cultural luminary or popular culture from the city. And he recorded so many songs about Jewish gangsters. And, and they're very Jewish, the songs, right? In terms of the type of music that's used, they have mm-hmm. this klezmer uh, feel to them. There's lots of fiddle and clarinet in them. Um, so the Bolsheviks had a problem with guys like him singing uh, songs that seemed, uh, in their minds, to celebrate um, a culture that for the Bolsheviks was uh, debaucherous and really had no place in a healthy uh, proletarian society based on, you know, based on morality mm-hmm. and, you know, culture that had a, a, a direction, cultural activities that had a direction that would abet the, the building of socialism. Mm-hmm. So they tried to silence the people producing the myths. And the how, myths. Did they, how did they do that exactly? Oh, they did it very much in the press. I mean, if you read the local press of the 1920s, um, you see uh, people writing condemnatory accounts um, of the Jewish gangsters of Odessa. Mm-hmm. But what is really ironic is that even these people who were condemning it or vilifying the city, I should say, actually played an important role in the construction of the myth. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, part of, you know, what made Odessa so exciting was the danger, this uh, this danger of the criminality. And after the revolution, this danger of looming, of, of, uh, of, uh, of impending doom, this mm-hmm. danger that the Bolsheviks are going to crack down. So these guys who are writing stories in the newspapers are actually, you know, talking about the Jewish criminals using the very same language that the people who would celebrate them would be using. Mm-hmm. They would be using Yiddish uh, and criminal slang. Uh, to describe their activities. Mm-hmm. They would have mock interviews um, with um, with Jewish gangsters who didn't really exist. <laughs> and they would try, try to portray these guys as being somehow ridiculous and having no place in Soviet power. Mm-hmm. So we have this dialogue going on between people who are, you know, 
trying to, you know, I would, I don't want to use the romantic, romanticized bit to try and put a positive spin on them and those who are trying to, who are claiming at least to put a more negative spin on them. Mm-hmm. Um, but the irony is that the negative spin, uh, played a role of reinforcing, um, the myth because it made it seem something illicit. It made it seem something dangerous that, mm-hmm. you know, the very fact that you might be sitting at a friend's place and singing a Jewish gangster song with him, you were crossing some sort of line. Um, so it added to the excitement. The vilification of the city was integral to its, uh, to its celebration. The two had to go, you know, hand in hand with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that lasted throughout the 1920s. Um, after the 20s, um, it's kind of slowed down. Uh, part of it has to do with the nature of Stalinism, um, and, you know, less freedom on the local, for the local press, particularly mm-hmm. in dealing with local issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, of greater concern was the, you know, the five-year plans and the collectivization and the looming fear of World War II. Mm-hmm. So people in the press stopped talking about Odessa in that way. In that way. So you see sort of a diminution of, of the myth, mm-hmm. at least publicly, in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. So what that suggests is that a greater danger for the survival of the myth of Odessa was actually silence rather than condemnation. Right. Because condemnation meant people were talking about it. Mm-hmm. And as long as people were talking about it, it meant that the myth was being kept alive. Mm-hmm. So in the 1930s, we gradually see, you know, things start to decline um, as far as the myth goes um, publicly. But, you know, Leonid Utyasov, you know, remained uh, the most popular uh, singer in the Soviet Union. And even if he wasn't allowed to record his criminal folk songs anymore, and um, there was a campaign to prevent him from recording them, um, he was still, he started writing his memoirs at this point. Mm-hmm. And in his memoirs, he found ways to weave in, you know, tales about Odessa mm-hmm. um, without actually mentioning the word Jewish anywhere in there. You know, he would, and he would not always, anytime he would try and celebrate an aspect of the city's uh, criminality, mm-hmm. he would sort of put, you know, a qualification in there afterwards, you know, suggesting, of course, now it's the Soviet era and, you know, they have improved life for everybody, mm-hmm. um, yada, 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 mm-hmm. we don't need these Jewish gangsters anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, while at the same time, he's really winking, you know, at his, audi- at his audience. So is this saying, the, you know, right. is, is this the period where implicit Jewishness is sort of born into the myth or has it already existed or... When, when does when does the Jewishness of the myths become implied and not so explicit? Well, that's the fascinating part of the whole thing, right? Implicit Jewishness has actually existed, um, you know, almost from the beginning, or I should say, really from the 1880s. Mm-hmm. Um, but once explicit Jewishness was no longer permissible in the Soviet Union um, in the 1930s, that wasn't quite the case yet, but it was heading in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly after World War II, explicit Jewishness um, was all but eliminated from, from Soviet culture. Um, so, so the implicit Jewishness tendency that had already been established um, allowed the myth to survive mm-hmm. um, this period. Um, it became implicitly Jewish in part in the earlier period because the Jews and the Russians had mixed so much and because the Jews um, adopted Russian as their lingua franca. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were able to, you know, just mention a name that sounded like it would be a Jewish name from Odessa or maybe a Jewish name from Odessa, um, that they wouldn't have to mention anything specifically Jewish about it. And the same thing was going on, of course, with Jewish culture in New York. So there wasn't necessarily an ideological dimension to it at first. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's the same way that you would watch a Mel Brooks movie. Um, and there would be very few explicitly Jewish references um, mm-hmm. in it. But there's plenty of implicit Jewish references. Right. Um, to the point where, let's say, somebody you know in Nebraska might be watching the movie. No offense to our, our listeners in Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Um, but they might not pick up that this is a Jewish movie. Mm-hmm. Um, even though to someone sitting in New York watching it, they will very much know that what they're watching, um, right. watching is Jewish. Mm-hmm. So once the ideological assault um, began, 
um, implicit Jewishness was a way um, for the uh, the myths and for Jewish culture really to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, Odessa, you know, the term Odessit and Odessan sort of became, uh, uh, you know, a stand-in for Jewishness, or you could even say Jewish criminality um, in certain situations. If someone was accused of being an Odessit, they were sort of saying, you know, he was a, you know, a Jewish lowlife, but, you know, he was very good at entertaining them, and therefore he was, you know, someone fun to have around. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so Odessa sort of became a, Jew, um, a surrogate channel that allowed um, Jewish culture to survive, mm-hmm. uh, to survive in the Soviet Union. So, okay. 1930s, like the 1930s, the key problem was not yet that Jewish culture um, was problematic, right? There were still the Yiddish theater was still operational in Moscow. Mm-hmm. Um, Sholem Aleichem stories um, were still uh, being uh, put on in various theaters around the country. Uh, Leonid Kiosov recorded some very explicit Jewish songs. Mm-hmm. Um, that had Jewish names in it, about Jewish families. Um, the problem from the perspective of the Soviet censors was the hybridization or the, the, the amalgamation of Jewishness, criminality, and humor. Mm-hmm. Those three things together were a problem um, because it did not fit uh, the model of, you know, proletarian, of proletarian culture as they imagined it. After World War II is a different story. Um, because, of course, with the anti-cosmopolitan campaign, mm-hmm. with the heightening tensions of the Cold War, um, with the lack of rehabilitation of Jewish culture, even after Stalin's death, mm-hmm. um, you could not really talk about Jews in public. Mm-hmm. Um, it was in this period that Odessa, as a surrogate channel for Jewish culture, um, became critical in allowing the myth to, uh, to survive and mm-hmm. publicly surface every so often. Not as often as it did in the 1920s but often enough where um, you can find manifestations of it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and does the myth, does, does, does its sort of popularity depend in any way on the actual number of Jews that are in the Soviet Union? Because they have, there's a sort of successive waves of, of emigration, um, you know, certainly near the end. But, but your book seems to make the argument that, uh, that that can actually have the opposite effect, that the more spread out, um, Odessa's population is, or the, the Jewish population is, that actually contributes to kind of growing the myth. Oh, definitely, definitely. Mm-hmm. I mean, were it not for the the Russian Revolution and the mass migration of Jews, particularly cultural figures, mm-hmm. out of the Pale of Settlement and out of Odessa into Moscow, mm-hmm. um, it is doubtful that you know the myth of Odessa would have had much impact on Soviet culture. Um, Isaac Babel, Leonid Tiosov, Ilson Petrov. Uh, Lev Slavin, I could go on and on and name uh, mm-hmm. prominent writers. Mm-hmm. And not all of them were Jewish. I mean, even someone like Konstantin Paustovsky, a uh, very important Soviet writer, mm-hmm. who lived for a fairly long time and was important in multiple eras. Mm-hmm. He wasn't Jewish, and he wasn't even originally from Odessa. But he spent um, a key uh, a key number of years, or a key period mm-hmm. of his life in Odessa during mm-hmm. the revolution. And he absorbed the Jewish culture that was there. He'd, he'd so been he was compromised. Able- He's been compromised. Yeah, yeah. he's been he's been Jewish, if right. you will. And, uh, so he went back to Moscow, and he played a pivotal role in reviving the myth after Stalin's death. Mm-hmm. Um, even though he was not Jewish, but mm-hmm. you read his writings, and you find the Yiddish inflections, you find the references to to Jewish gangsters without actually using the word Jewish at any point um, in, at any point in his writing. Mm-hmm. So yes, the, the mass migration, and this applies, of course, uh, not just in terms of Odessa and its culture. This really implies this really. Um, applies to Jewish culture as a whole um, in Russia um, and Jewish economic life in Russia. The, the uh, elimination of the Pale of Settlement mm-hmm. and uh, the push towards Moscow and Petersburg and then into the interior after the revolution um, allowed the Jews to become you know, a national phenomenon in such a way 
um, that they hadn't been and couldn't be um, mm -hmm. before the before the Russian Revolution. Mm -hmm. And then there's an international dimension to this too as well. Um, with people leaving um, the Soviet Union, first you have a wave after the revolution, those who did not see their future under communism. Um, many of them went to Palestine. Um, some of the early Zionists, in fact, uh, Chaim Nachman Bialik, the great um, Hebrew writer, uh, Hebrew poet, he tried to create a, a so-called Odessa in Palestine organization when he, uh, when he arrived there, um, I believe in the 1910s. Um, and then after World War II, there were some that left after, um, after the Holocaust, and certainly as the Soviet Union started to fall apart, and the Jews started to move to both Israel and Brighton Beach. And Brighton Beach, of course, Brighton Beach is known as Little Odessa. Right. So even though I would venture to guess that the majority of Russians living on Brighton Beach are not actually um, from Odessa, mm -hmm. um, that Odessa, again, here you see this sort of surrogate channel and this way that the name Odessa could take on a certain take on this uh, symbolic power right. right by associating it with this group of people mm -hmm. who are living there it's taking on this idea that yeah we're jewish criminals mm -hmm. and you know we're kind of proud of it mm -hmm. uh, without actually saying so right um before before pushing into kind of the the khrushchev or the brezhnev era, i wanted to ask you when i was reading the book um i got the sense that as the Jewishness became more implicit, and this is sort of a kind of, you know, it's a growing phenomenon as there's, first it's it's sort of just for demographic reasons, and then you get a political pressure that sort of, you know, encourages the implicitness um, for, you know, for, for lack of a better term. Um, but um, I wonder when you, when that comes back, and you kind of mentioned that, uh, you know, it relied on, on political pressure, on scandal, and when it wasn't being talked about, or repressed than or oppressed then it, it was it wasn't quite as as alive as a myth now when you get the end of, of Soviet power and it's allowed to be explicit again does that make the myth less accept less less accessible to non-jews or to to even maybe even to Jews maybe when it when when they could imagine themselves kind of as a as a nationless uh, hero say in in mm -hmm. these various stories did that make it kind of more appealing or have you noticed that that, that this doesn't, this is not an effect. That people are fine with it being, you know, explicit. Or does, does that kind of change the popularity? Well, it, there's actually a bit of a paradox at work here. I found because um, the myth is everywhere today in mm -hmm. Odessa itself. You mm -hmm. go there, and there's this whole uh, commodification, this whole tourism built around um, the Odessa myth. Um, I was able to go on a minibus tour called Kriminalnaya Odessa, where the you know the criminals of Odessa, mm -hmm. and you know they took you to all the famous sites where the Jewish gangsters lived. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, there was a mix of fact and fantasy. I tried to just to make the guys' life difficult. I tried to pin down the, uh, the tour guide a couple of points, mm -hmm. uh, some chronological facts, <laughs> and. Uh, um, I left him kind of mumbling his way through his uh, through his through his piece. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, you go down the main streets, the Rybasovskaya, and uh, the other streets, and you know, you now have cafes that bear the names of the pre-revolutionary haunts right. of the Jewish gangsters, like Cafe Fanconi, uh -huh. um, or you have a bar called Gambrinos now, and Gambrinos was a uh, um, a bar made famous in a, a story by Alexander Kuprina, but a Jewish fiddler who played for for gangsters and uh, and sailors. Mm -hmm. So. You have this commodification of the myth in, in such a way that you did not have beforehand, and it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, you walk into a bookstore and look, you know, locally published books, and you have collections of criminal folk songs um, for sale, and it's explicitly Jewish. They'll make direct references to the Jewishness now in such a way that they wouldn't have um, or couldn't have beforehand. So the myth certainly isn't less accessible, mm -hmm. but ironically, what I found is this 
has a lessening effect effect on the myth's potency mm-hmm. because as i mentioned about the you know the 1920s mm-hmm. um and even the revolutionary period part of the allure of odessa was the danger mm-hmm. right if, if you were going to go there before the revolution you know it had this, uh, this reputation as this fast city and indeed it was you know the hub for prostitution and contraband um and gangsterism mm-hmm. the dangerous part of it that made the myth exciting um after the revolution um part of the danger was impending doom the bolsheviks were going to crack down they were vilifying the city and they were vilifying the myth that, you know, we are going to be, you know, subversive in such a way and try and keep it alive. Mm-hmm. But today, nobody's vilifying it. Right. I mean, today it's acceptable to everybody. Mm-hmm. And today you don't have, you know, criminality as you did then. Um, Why well, I should I should rephrase that. Um, <laughs> obviously, there's criminals in the former Soviet Union and in many, if not most places, particularly in southern Russia. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, people will say, oh, the criminals say they're not like the criminals in the old days, you know. Mm-hmm. So so the danger is gone. The the mystical attraction, if you will, the, to the criminality of the city mm-hmm. um, and the fear of impending destruction is gone. Mm-hmm. So if no one's vowing to destroy um, Odessa's criminality, if no one is vilifying uh, the criminality anymore and they're only celebrating it, mm-hmm. then part of the allure is gone. Right. I mean, it's something a key element um, is missing mm-hmm. because that's fear of impending destruction. And, you know, I try to present it at the end of my book in, in, in you know, almost biblical terms, mm-hmm. you know, like the Bolsheviks, the Bolsheviks threatening to destroy the place uh, like Sodom and Gomorrah. Like old Odessa was very much the golden calf. Mm-hmm. Um, it was sin. And, you know, Moses was standing there up at the mountain and he was going to throw down uh, the two tablets. Right. Well, Mos- Moses is gone. The Bolsheviks are gone. Um, and now it's just minibus drivers who celebrate the gangsters, mm-hmm. um, who, and everyone publishes whatever they want on the topic. And that's why you try and look at the post-Soviet stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just hundreds and hundreds of books, uh, memoirs, um, collections of folk songs, anecdotes, um, and museums and monuments around the city. Um, because it is now fully acceptable. So mm-hmm. it has become post-Soviet kitsch, um, in right. many respects. Mm-hmm. Um, so to get back to your question about whether that makes it less or more accessible, I, I think it's it's more accessible now, but it's not as attractive right. um, in the same way. Right. Locals are very attracted to it, and locals love it, because for them, um, at least as far as contemporaries go, this is how they imagine uh, the past. For them, the people today in Odessa, uh, they're, they're imagined, the imagined criminality of their city um, is their way of believing that they were able to resist the Soviet system. I'm sure. not saying that they were actually resisting it at the time necessarily, uh-huh. but with hindsight, the collective memory of the people today is that we resisted Sovietization, mm-hmm. um, and we did so um, through the myth of Odessa, through right. these criminal folk songs that we would sing together by gathering in people's apartments and recording them, like uh, uh, Vysotsky, of course, uh, who was one of the key uh, Soviet uh, mu- musicians who teetered on the brink of, you know, illicitness. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he recorded so many Odessan criminal folk songs. Mm-hmm. But there were others who did so too. And they would record them in people's apartments. Uh, you had these famous Odessi concerti, Odessa concerts, mm-hmm. um, given by um, Arkady Sieverny, who recorded probably about 12 concerts, mostly filled with Odessa criminal folk songs. Mm-hmm. He wasn't from Odessa, and most of these concerts were not even recorded in Odessa. But they were literally in friends' kitchens in the 1970s, um, with one guy with one of those, uh, uh, one reel tape recorders that mm-hmm. became popular at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so for Odessans, they say, this is resistance. We resisted the Soviet system and, uh, we survived and we're still here today. Okay. And so that, that's kind of a story of resistance for the entire city, I imagine. That's, that's not so exclusive to the Jewish population even. 
Oh, yeah, definitely. Right. definitely. Okay. It's very much, yeah, it's very much uh, for the whole city. Right. Um, I wouldn't say everybody in the city buys into it. You know, sure. and, and you do have, you know, in, in the last few decades, you have Ukrainians coming in from some of the smaller towns. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and for them, this might not have much significance um, mm-hmm. whatsoever. But particularly, you know, the older generation, you know, people, people, let's say, in their, their 50s and up, you know, who claim that they remember all these things and, right. you know, the parents, you know, I've seen these Jewish gangsters. Mm-hmm. I mean, for them, for them, it's really a badge of honor. You know, they're, they're almost proud of it. And, and it's, it's a form of empowerment. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't want to suggest, and this is the key thing that I, I try to be very careful with um, in, in my book, that we can necessarily say that the Odessa myth was for everyone participating it a form of resistance mm-hmm. right it, it it's too it, it would be too facile to read this in terms of uh you know compliance or sovietization versus those who resisted it just to take uh let's say two opposite examples um of people who were involved in the myth production um at one extreme you have someone like leonid dutyosov the great soviet jazz musician who lived until uh, the early 1980s who you know suffered of uh, campaigns at various points against him for singing criminal folk songs, but his career never suffered for it. He just switched to playing other music, mm-hmm. and then he started to write memoirs where he celebrated his city. Mm-hmm. He was popular throughout the Soviet period. Everything he had, he owed to the communist revolution. Um, were it not for communism and the destruction of the Pale of Settlement, and of course his talent, he would have probably spent his life um, living in the Pale of Settlement um, and really not amounting to much. So he had no, you know, he did not, at least in terms of what I've read of his, mm-hmm. um, and I've read everything he's written, you know, he, he did not see himself as having resisted the Soviet system. For him, he saw no problem with being Soviet, right. with having loyalty um, to the Soviet state. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, this is key during World War II, you know, mm-hmm. when patriotism is really, uh, you know, something that, that almost every Jew would, would have embraced at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so he saw no incompatibility with him being Soviet and him being a proud defeat and everything that implied. Mm-hmm. At the other extreme, you have the great Soviet dissident writer Andrei Sinyavsky, who um, ended up being put on trial, um, uh, a trial that achieved uh, you know, international infamy. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote much of his stuff um, using the pseudonym um, Abram Terz, mm-hmm. or Abraham Terz. Um, who was the name of a legendary Jewish gangster um, from Odessa. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no evidence that a man named Abram Teretz ever lived, um, but there was a criminal folk song about a Jewish gangster named Abram Teretz. Mm-hmm. Now, for him, in adopting this name, this was clearly an act of resistance against the Soviet state. He was rejecting uh, the Soviet Union censorship and everything that it implied, and by embracing someone, who, a name that was marked as Jewish and criminal, mm-hmm. um, it was an act of defiance. Okay. So, so the point is, if you see these two opposite poles, Utyosov on the one hand and Sinyavsky on the other hand, you have a whole range of people, you know, in between, um, who participated in the production of the myth um, at various points. And some, for some of them, yes, this was a means of resistance. But for a good many of them, uh, they saw no incompatibility with being um, a loyal Soviet citizen um, and being able to, you know, write about, sing about, and make jokes about, you know, the city of Odessa um, for its uh, infamous reputation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so we're, we're, we're approaching 50 minutes here. So why don't we, I, I kind of wanted to bring it back to, to, uh, kind of the nature of Jewish irony. Cause I thought that was something that was sort of a, a theme that pervades the book. And, um, mm-hmm. and so this may be kind of a note that we could maybe wrap up on. Um, there, the, one of the, one of the ironic things about the, about the, the, the sort of revolutionary period that I noted was that 
the you describe the the Bolsheviks as coming into Odessa basically as Puritans, and what they're so upset. You even you even use the phrase at one point, "Godless Odessa," and how it upsets the Bolsheviks. Um, mm-hmm. um, and so I thought this was sort of like a wonderful example of 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 the paradoxes and reversals that that seem to be such an important trope in in the uh, in this sort of nature of Jewish humor. And could you kind of explain for readers? Because you have a, few, a number of times throughout the book, you get into the, the logic games that Jewish uh, linguistics can play and how it reverses a, a, a power relationship. And, and I think that, that that's a really important thing, given, especially on the on the subject of sort of resistance, kind of how do we understand how they used humor in, as a form of resistance, those, those that did, that is. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Jewish humor is very much rooted in, uh, you know, what may be called linguistic manipulation. It's a key element of it. And, and a lot of it has to do with um, Jewish, uh, Jewish, the, Jew- the religion of Judaism and uh, Jewish culture historically. Um, Jewish religious life was governed uh, for 1500 years by the Talmud. Um, and the Talmud, um, a document which is um, commentary on the oral Torah and the written Torah, um, is very much built around argument and and uh, debate, uh, where uh, the rabbis of Babylon are going back and forth exploring the minutia um, of every possible uh, scenario. Uh, one that my most striking memory of the Talmud from elementary school was, uh, you know, how do you get a cow out of a ditch on the Sabbath? Mm-hmm. And they would explore every possible scenario where a cow could, where any different type of cow could mm-hmm. fall into a ditch in the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. And this has carried, uh, the rabbis were taking it dead seriously. They weren't are there, are there funny. several types of cows? Uh, well, yeah, well, yeah, of course. Yeah, okay. I mean, cows are in issues, you know, where the ditch is, on a, if it's on a neighbor's lawn, if I it's see. on a Tanju's lawn, you know, there's all sorts of scenarios. Uh-huh. And so, so this, this tendency to debate the minutia of things, mm-hmm. um, which the rabbis took dead, deadly seriously, they weren't, they weren't trying to be funny here, mm-hmm. um, has carried over into Jewish humor because, you know, the, the Talmud is what governs, um, religious, uh, religious life and education in Eastern Europe. So this, uh, Talmudic, uh, Talmudic logic, as some scholars have called it, has found its way into Jewish humor. First in the uh, Yiddish humor that developed um, in the Pale of Settlement, mm-hmm. um, and then into the Russian language Jewish humor and the English language Jewish humor. Uh, the former being in the Soviet Union, the latter being in the United States, mainly New York. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have this obsession with language, this obsession with exploring the minutia of things, um, circular reasoning, flawed logic as being a dominant aspect of what makes uh, Jewish humor distinctive. Um, now, the thing is, though, that, and this is where, you know, Odessa, and if you want to use the word resistance, you know, it becomes important. Um, a lot of people see Talmudic logic and uh, Talmudic debate as just leading to a dead end. It's a circular reasoning that won't get you anywhere. At the end of the day, your cow's still going to be in the ditch, um, and you will have nothing you can do about it. It's just a long transcript of a conversation that went nowhere, um, which you might be able to describe the average curb your enthusiasm as, because that's sort of how things happen, happen on that. Right. But what's fascinating is that, you know, it was all about, you know, winning the argument in many respects, right? You had to refine your debating skills and you had to take the minutia, you had to turn it on its head and you had to overturn the language that your opponent would be using to show um, that your your response was correct. So it's linguistic entrapment mm-hmm. um, of a sort. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the way language could be empowering um, in terms of Jewish humor. And it's a way of sort of mocking the oppressor um, without the oppressor necessarily realizing it. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the oppressed seems to be self-deprecating himself, uh, deprecating himself in the process. Um, so there's this ambiguity hanging over, hanging over the linguistic manipulation at the end, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, no one's quite sure what to make of it. And then if you think about it, you realize, wait a sec, 
this guy just, you know, made an idiot of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, again, you see this in Jewish humor um, in the United States very much mm-hmm. um, in the in the mid to late 20th century. Um, it's key on shows like Curb Your Enthusiasm. The movie Borat's all about that. Mm-hmm. I and mean, that's where you have the Jewish influence in there, him injecting himself into situations mm-hmm. uh, where which people are taking seriously. And then he overturns it by doing something outrageous that at first they, you know, just chalk up to his, you know, cultural backwardness. Mm-hmm. But then for the audience, okay, this is a guy who is manipulating logic and manipulating what is fundamentally, you know, a flawed system, mm-hmm. uh, system for them. So this is absolutely key mm-hmm. um, in Jewish humor. Just to give you an example, um, you find it very much in Yiddish cursing. Yiddish oh. is famous for its long and intricate curses. Uh-huh. Um, and they usually begin with the phrase mayu, mm-hmm. uh, which in Yiddish is zolstu. And in Russian, you see it as shtobui. Uh-huh. So whenever you see a phrase that's a curse in Russian that begins with shtobui, it's actually a direct borrowing from uh, from Yiddish. Okay. Um, and the brilliant thing with the Yiddish curse is that it starts off seeming that it might be a compliment, but then it's, mm-hmm. then it's overturned on its head, and it's actually an insult. Right. Um, right. Just to give you an example, may your enemies get cramps in their legs while they dance on your grave. <laughs> so you, know, you have to think about you know that for a second, uh-huh. and then you realize you're being insulted. Right. Um, right. May your daughter's beauty be admired by everyone in the circus. Uh-huh. You know. <laughs> right. Um, may all your teeth fall out except for one, and in that one, may you get a toothache. So, <laughs> yeah. Right. And there are, there are a lot of subtle ones, too, like uh, one classic one, which out of context may not be understood. Mm-hmm. Um, may uh, may your children uh, kneel in prayer um, as they remember you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the problem with that is it sounds like, oh, your children are being nice and they're, you know, remembering you, they're commemorating you. Right. But to kneel is a Christian form of worship. Mm-hmm. So that implies that your dead. child is near. Yeah, he's converted to Christianity. Oh, which, I see. And, which uh-huh. in 19th century imperial Russia was the uh, the equivalent of apostasy. Right, right. Um, so that's you know something worse than death. I see. Uh, another one is maybe uh, may you never have to suffer the heat of a Polish uh, a Polish summer. Uh-huh. That sounds like a compliment. Right. That's great. I don't have to experience the misery of Poland. Uh-huh. But how if you were a Jew stuck in the Pale of Settlement, not going to experience a Polish summer? Right. You will be in exile in Siberia, uh-huh. probably for being a revolutionary. <laughs> I see. So, <laughs> right, right. Okay. <laughs> All right. But you have that language finding its way into um, into the Odessa myth, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and it's done very often with subtlety. It's very often done with verbosity, mm-hmm. um, and this is this is the interesting part where in the 1960s, um, where you have a bit of a revival of the myth, but it has to be done in such a way where you're not going to have explicit markers of Jewishness. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a a couple of films, uh, The Elusive Avengers, and there was also a sequel to it. Um, which is a serious movie about, you know, some Jewish, uh, teenagers, um, who, uh, sorry, not Jewish, excuse me, some Soviet partisan teenagers, mm-hmm. um, who are actually, you know, infiltrating, um, Odessa, which was then under control of the White Army, mm-hmm. to expel them and establish Soviet power. Mm-hmm. But you have this one guy, this entertainer in the movie, this guy named Buba Kastorsky, mm-hmm. a name that, you know, has to be Jewish, mm-hmm. um, who, you know, is there for comic relief. And, Keeps repeating the whole movie, Ya Odessi, Ya Odessi, I'm in Odessa, Ya Izadies, I'm from Odessa. And that's his moniker. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's an entertainer, but he's also trying to, you know, cause difficulties for, you know, the white army. He mm-hmm. infiltrates, you know, shows up at one of the white officers' offices, and he goes off on this long, verbose conversation about how he used to tutor uh, math to some farmer's daughter. And, you know, by the end of the conversation, the guy was ready to throw him out of his office, but in the process, he was able to, you know, free the other partisans which mm-hmm. were being one of the partisans who was being held mm-hmm. the guy just got so fed up with him with all his stories about his family and his friends and all this and he said okay i don't need this get out of here right. so 
there's no there's no explicit marker of Jewishness in there except for the way he phrases his conversation. Mm -hmm. And he throws out the word schlamazel at one point, mm -hmm. which, you know, in American English, you know, has become an accepted word of Yiddish origin. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in Soviet Russian, you will not encounter it too much. So I he see. throws it out in the middle of one of his sentences. And that's mm -hmm. just kind of one of those, you know, winking at the audiences. Yeah, you know, I'm an Odessan and I'm telling you that, but I'm, you know, also kind of Jewish uh -huh. or probably very influenced by Jewish culture at some right, point. Right, right, right. Okay. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to New Books in Russia and Eurasia Studies. Oh, my um, pleasure. Yeah. Is there any, anything you'd like to finish with? A message to your readers, perhaps? <laughs> A message to my readers? Uh, read the book. I promise you it'll be um, as exciting for you as it seems to have been for Kevin. Okay. Fantastic. And All thanks. Right. It's a great pleasure appearing on your show. Okay. Great. Thanks very much, Jared. Have a good day. Thank you. You too. Bye. I've been speaking with Jared Taney about his book, City of Rogues and Schnorrs, Russia's Jews and the Myth of Old Odessa. I hope you enjoyed this interview. Once again, I'm Kevin Rothrock, your host for New Books in Russia and Eurasia. If you're interested in hearing more interviews by the New Books Network, please go to newbooksnetwork.com. And be sure to tune in again for future interviews by me and my co-host, Sean Guillory. Many thanks for listening. Until next time.